Our sermon this morning is, we're covering 14 chapters, so we're going to, we're going to hit the ground running here. We're going to look at the story of Joseph and his brothers. Turn there in your Bibles, if you brought them, or just look on the screen. We're not going to read all of it, and so if you follow along on the screen, that's your best bet to make sure that you uh, can kind of stay, stay where, we're, where we're headed. But this is our last sermon in the book of Genesis. We've been, uh, we've been in Genesis since Christmas, really. Uh, we looked at kind of the, the two main uh, you know, parts of the, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 11, kind of creation, primeval history, kind of the, the, the origin story, as, as it were. So, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden, man, sin, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, the flood, uh, the Tower of Babel, these kinds of things. Those are what we, we saw in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And then we looked at Genesis chapters 12 through 50, which kind of zeroes in on a specific family, um, a specific uh, patriarch, and kind of shows the, the family line and lineage of Abraham and his, his children. And so we saw God's covenant with Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, all kinds of drama. They give birth to, to Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca. They eventually give birth to Jacob and Esau. Still all kinds of drama and tension. Uh, finally, uh, Jacob leaves home because his brother Esau wants to kill him uh, because he had ripped him off. And so Jacob goes to La- the home of Laban. He marries Rachel uh, and Leah there, has a bunch of kids. Eventually Laban is ripping Jacob off, so he gets mad. He leaves and kind of heads back home to Canaan. Um, and that's really where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 33 uh, with Jacob leaving uh, Laban's home, going back to Canaan to kind of set up shop and to kind of build his own family and enterprise there. Genesis 34 crazy story. So Jacob has 11 uh, sons at this point and one daughter. Uh, her name is Dinah. She gets sexually assaulted uh, by just a, a local loser. Uh, you know, he's like a prince of a neighboring town. And so that guy reaches out to Jacob, her father, uh, and says, hey, I would like to marry uh, this girl that I just assaulted. Um, and I, I'd kind of like your blessing to do so. Um, and uh, all of Dinah's brothers, all of Jacob's sons, there's 11 of them, they, uh, you know, largely under, uh, under the, the kind of leadership of just a couple of them that are more uh, aggressive and more volatile uh, in nature, they kind of devise this plan and they say, sure, you can marry our sister Dinah, um, but uh, you have to be circumcised. That's like a rule. Uh, and so we're, we're not going to let you marry our sister unless you get circumcised. And while, while you're at it, everyone in your whole entire city has to be circumcised if you want to marry our daughter. Uh, and so the guy's like, all right, well, I really like her, so I'll do it. So he uh, gets circumcised. He uh, makes an edict that everyone in the city has to get circumcised. Of course, they take a couple days off work after that because they're grown-ups, and it's pretty invasive and painful surgery. They're all recovering, and uh, Jacob and his, or Jacob's sons uh, come in and just kill everyone. <laughs> they're all kind of just they're, they're reeling in pain. Uh, they all get killed. They take all of their stuff. That's Genesis 34. Genesis 35, uh, Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin, is born. So uh, up until this point, Joseph is his youngest son, the only son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, Benjamin is born, and Rachel dies as a result of of childbirth. Genesis 36, uh, genealogy, you can kind of follow and track some of Esau's descendants and family line. That brings us to Genesis 37, where we're going to pick up the story today, looking at Joseph and his brothers. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to just, uh, yeah, sprint through as much of these 14 chapters as we, as we can. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing 
uh, on our time in your word this morning. We pray that it would be profitable for our hearts and minds. Lord, we acknowledge that apart from your Holy Spirit, we do not have the capacity to understand or, or to benefit from this book. And so we ask you to speak to us and work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Starting in Genesis 37, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, being 17 years old, Jacob's uh, second youngest son at this point, uh, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought a bad report uh, about uh, them to their father. So Leah's got six kids. Uh, you know, there's two, two kids, uh, born to each of these two maidservants and then two kids born to, to Rachel, uh, verse three. Now Israel, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is the same I mean, it's like a record on repeat. The same generational sins manifesting themselves over and over. Parents show favoritism to a particular child. They love that one more than the rest. And the result is sibling rivalry, resentment, violence. It happened with Abraham. It happened with Isaac. Now it's happening with Jacob and into the the generation with with Joseph. If if Genesis 12 through 50 is nothing else, uh, it is a, a cautionary tale about parenting. Uh, and, and about, uh, you know, pursuing godliness as a parent with the knowledge of the fact that, um, that, your, that, that sins tend to work, them, work their way down uh, through the generations, right? If you're, if you're violent and your kid sees you be violent, there's a good chance he is going to be violent. If, you're, if you have a short temper, there's a good chance that they're going to inherit that. If you're unfaithful to your spouse. There's a good chance that your kids are going to see that and that it's going to express itself in the next generation. A big application is to, is to as, as a parent or as an aspiring parent, watch your doctrine and your life closely because it's not just your doctrine. It's not just your life, but there's a good chance that it's going to express itself in your kids as they, they grow up. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. He said, listen to this dream I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said, Are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed going to rule over us? They hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it, even his father and his brothers, uh, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers come and bow before you as well? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph is the the favorite son of the father. He, you know, he needs to read the room a little better. He could, he could, you know, take a, a, you know, he could go to a Toastmasters class or something, right? Like learn some lessons intact, uh, you know, how to, how to, what to say, how to say it, when to say it. Uh, down in verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan and they saw him from afar. And, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits, one of these wells. 
And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see, then we'll see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, Reuben's kind of like the one, you know, guy with a, with a, you know, a, a soft heart, or at least a softer heart. He said, don't shed any blood, just put him in the pit alive. But don't lay a hand on him that we, and really he's doing it so that he might rescue them out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came and his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him in the pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Joseph said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. And they listened and they drew him up out of the well and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And Joseph went to Egypt. And then Reuben came back to the pit and he saw Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers. He said, the boy is gone. Where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and they brought it to their father and they said, we have found, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph was without doubt been torn to pieces. And, Joseph, and Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, the, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's kind of where we're at. The end of Genesis 37, Joseph sold into slavery, uh, kind of the family dealing with <coughs> the aftermath of that incident. Genesis 38, there's an, another interlude story. Um, it's the story of Judah and Tamar. We studied it uh, during Advent last year. You can kind of revisit that um, if you'd like. But essentially, Judah, up until this point, has kind of been one of the ringleaders of like stirring up animosity against Joseph. Kill him. Throw him in the pit. Sell him to the, you know, he's like leading the charge. Jo- Judah is, is uh, you know, not a good guy. And in Genesis chapter 38, there's a story of uh, Judah and Tamar. One of Judah's sons marries this girl named Tamar, uh, and then he dies. And so, so Judah's like, maybe there's something wrong with her. Like any guy that gets around her starts to die. So then he, uh, as is the custom, he, uh, you know, gives her another one of his sons uh, to marry her so that they can have a child, carry on the family line of the guy who died. Um, but that guy's a jerk too. He sleeps with her, but he intentionally doesn't allow her to, to bear children uh, so that he doesn't have to raise them and kind of be a responsible father. So he dies. And now Judah's like, oh man, like two out of my three kids are dead because they've gotten within 10 feet of this woman. So I'm not going to let my third son get anywhere near her. And meanwhile, she's kind of like, hey, what a jerk. Like he's got three sons. The first two are both jerks. He should let me marry the third one so that I can have protection and provision and maybe have a child to kind of give me stability in my old age. Judah's withholding that. And eventually Tamar deceives Judah into sleeping with her. So he, he married his son. And then his other son 
And then, uh, and then eventually she deceives him into sleeping with her and, and bears a son from Judah. So Judah is both this kid's father and grandfather. Um, in, in some sense, it's kind of kind of weird. Anyways, uh, but it's this big embarrassing story, and it's kind of this turning point in Judah's life where he is uh, embarrassed by his own sin and his own selfishness. Um, and, and so we can kind of see maybe the trajectory kind of change for Judah in the coming chapters. In verse, uh, chapter 39, verse 1, we read, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended uh, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer in his house, um, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing uh, of the Lord was on all that he had. So he left Joseph in charge of everything because he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So Joseph is like a good employee. He's like the guy that you want running your company, running your business, right? If you're a company owner and you hire someone and they run your company for you and it's more profitable than it was when you were running it personally, that's a good hire. You want to keep that guy around. If all you have to do is just cash checks that are coming into your company and then worry about where you're going to eat dinner that night, that's a good, that's a good gig. And that's the gig that Potiphar has. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. We're in verse 6. There we go. Uh, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He's put everything he has under my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. I'm literally like just neck and neck with your husband, the owner of the house. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you. You're the only thing that I'm not to touch in this house. How can I do this great wickedness against God? And she spoke to him day after day. And he would not listen to her and he would not lie beside her or be with her. So Joseph uh, is a, is, has authority, but he's also young and single and attractive. And this, uh, this, this woman wants to be with him, but he has morals and principles. And he's not going to, uh, he's not going to compromise his integrity. He's not going to do anything that's not above reproach, even if he has the opportunity to do so, even if he could do it and remain anonymous, do it and experience no consequences, that kind of thing. But one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the men were there. And she caught him by his garment. He says, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. So, so you know, before we saw, you know, uh, assault from the, the prince to Joseph's sister Dinah. Now Joseph is the one being assaulted by this woman. And he, he runs away, leaves his coat, just gets the heck out of the, the house. And as soon as she saw that he left his garment in the hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her house and said, See, uh, see, he brought this Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. She's lying, right? Cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice, he left his garment and he fled and got out of the house. She's uh, falsely accusing Joseph of assaulting her when she's the one who was propositioning and assaulting him. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. And there he was with the king's prisoners. And he was there in prison. Joseph 
just keeps getting raw deal after raw deal, right? He, it started great. It started where he was, you know, one of the, you know, more or less the youngest son for a while. Then he gets a younger brother, but he's the favorite son. And that's kind of a good situation to be in. But it just goes downhill south, right? It goes downhill really quickly, right? He's attacked by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, trafficked into a foreign country, sexually assaulted, accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison indefinitely without a trial, no hearing of any kind. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. It's a recurring theme, right? Joseph goes to Potiphar's house. The Lord's with him and gives him success. He goes to prison. The Lord's with him and gives him success. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Same thing, right? They just delegate to Joseph. He crushes it. He makes me look good. I get promotions. I get attaboys from my boss. And all I have to do is just tell Joseph to do uh, my job for me. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, so Joseph's been in jail for a while now, uh, you know, because he was falsely accused. The cupbearer of the king and the baker committed an offense against the Lord, their king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with them, and he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker, the king of Egypt, they were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, they, uh, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, uh, why are your faces downcast today? And they said, we have had dreams and we ha- no one is here to interpret them. And Joseph said, don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And they tell him his dreams and he interprets both of them like right on the money. He says, you know, you cupbearer, you're going to be restored uh, to, the, to the king. Uh, and you baker, you're going to get executed. Uh, and then those exact things happen exactly like Joseph said that they, that they were. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, verse 21, Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief, cup, the chief baker, uh, and Joseph had interpreted him. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. So like Joseph's one thing when he told the cupbearer, good, I've got good news for you. You're going to be restored to the king. You're going to be back in, in comfort and in, you know, your, your life where you were, where you're going to be free. Only remember when it is well with you, please do me the kindness and mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this prison. It's holding out hope. And as soon as the cupbearer uh, gets out, right, as soon as, when he's in prison and he needs Joseph, he's like, buddy, buddy. But as soon as he gets out and gets back to Pharaoh, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't, you know, I don't know that I have the capital yet to kind of, you know, tell Pharaoh to, to look out for, for Joseph so he forgets about him. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh had a dream. Right? So the story reads quickly, but it is long and drawn out. Joseph was 17 when that whole thing happened, when he got, you know, uh, sent to, to uh, Egypt. We're going to see in a few moments that he's 30 years old by the time he, you know, comes, uh, by the time he gets out of prison and kind of st- the, the story continues. Years and years and years are going by and Joseph is patiently waiting and trusting in the sovereign will of God. I've been betrayed. I've been attacked. I've been maligned. I've been exploited. I've been sold into slavery. I've been accused. I've been locked in prison for something that I didn't do. And Joseph trusts and he waits. 
Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Hey, I remember, you know, now that you, now that you say that you have a dream without an interpretation, I'm reminded of a God, right? Because now it's like convenient for him to, to point out, right? Before it was like, I'm asking for a favor. I don't want to do that. I want to save all the favors for me. Now it's like I'm doing you a favor by, by telling you about, about Joseph. Right, when Pharaoh was angry with us, we were in custody. We dreamed on the same night, and, and he, uh, he and I, each having a dream of its own interpretation, and a young Hebrew was there, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him, and he interpreted the dreams to us, giving us an interpretation, and he interpreted them to us, and it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged, exactly like uh, Joseph said would happen. Verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard that you can hear dreams and interpret them. And Joseph said, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Right? So just, I mean, we're seeing trait after trait after trait of Joseph kind of start to pile up of exemplary godliness. Right? He is moral and upright and has integrity and he's above reproach. Right? He, he you know flees from sexual sin and temptation, right? When he has an opportunity to do something that is wrong, he doesn't even when he could conceivably get away with it. He's patient. He trusts in the sovereignty of God day after day, month after month, year after year. And now when he kind of has an opportunity to kind of hoard uh, and kind of absorb all of the praise and glory and all of the, you know, just, just admiration from, from Pharaoh, the king, the grandest person in the land, he deflects it. He points, uh, Pharaoh's attention to God. He says, God is the one who deserves the credit and the glory, not me. Verse 28. Uh, So yeah, in in the next few verses, Pharaoh explains his dreams to Joseph. And in verse 28, uh, Joseph tells him uh, what they're all about. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Here's what your dreams mean, Pharaoh. They mean that there will be seven years of great plenty throughout all the land, and after them there will arise seven years of famine. So bad that the plenty will be forgotten in the entire land, right? Everyone's 401ks are going to spike, and then they're all going to just bottom out. And it'll be so bad uh, that, that no one will have anything, right? The plenty will be completely unknown in the land uh, that will follow because it will be that severe. Verse 33, now, therefore, Pharaoh should select someone discerning and wise uh, and, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take 20%, one-fifth of the produce from Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let him gather all the food during these good years and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. Let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are going to come later so that no one will perish. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh uh, said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be Lord over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph, you are on par, right? Same authority as me. The only difference is I have a throne and you don't. Puts a signet ring on Joseph's hand, clothes him in garments of fine linen, puts a gold chain around his neck, makes him ride in a fancy chariot. Everyone calls out, bow your knee whenever Joseph comes 
uh, comes into their presence. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years uh, when the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food from these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put food in the cities. He put every city, the food, from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And these people in Egypt are the only guys who have any food because everyone else all over the world, all over the world, everyone's like, oh, great, like plentiful, plentiful year after plentiful year. This, I guess this is just the new normal. Like we're going to just live large, spend, eat, drink, be merry. Egypt, under the leadership of Joseph, are the only people saying, let's rein it in. Let's live below our means in anticipation of maybe uh, when, when it gets worse. Verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of but only in the land of Egypt what, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, people cried out, and Pharaoh said, "Go to Joseph, do whatever he he's the guy." So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened the storehouses, and the famine was severe. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to came came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Chapter forty two. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Why are you standing there looking at each other? Haven't you heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt? Go down and buy grain there that we may live and not die, knuckleheads. So the ten of Joseph's brothers went down, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold to all of the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Which is exactly what Joseph said was going to happen in his dreams at the beginning of this whole story. So it's kind of coming full circle. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. He spoke roughly to them. He said, where did you come from? They said, we came from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. And he said to them, no, you're spies. You've come to see the land. You have come, you, you. And they said, no, we've come to buy food. We're the sons of one man. We are honest men. We have never been spies. Joseph has a few options when he sees his brothers. Uh, can I come? One, he could just like, like, you know, put his car, like, uh, like I win, right? I said that you'd bow down to me. You did. Hot, right? Like I, you know, here's who I am. I mean, he could, he could hide, continue to hide his identity. He could just say, you know, or he could take revenge. He could just have him killed, right? They, they, you know, were jerks. I'm going to return the, the favor. He could hide his identity and say, I don't like him. I don't want, that was a former way of life. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. Um, he could reveal himself and just kind of see, but he opts for this other, like this kind of, um, uh, almost a test case or a case study. He's like, I'm going to just like let things play out, not reveal who I am and see if they test whether or not these guys have grown at all or whether they're still the same jerks that threw me into the well and sold me into slavery. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, it is as I have said, you're spies. By this you shall be tested, right? Uh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. So they had said, uh, there's 10 of us we're the son of one man, but our youngest brother's at home. He says, all right, well then, then prove it. Go get your youngest brother here. Send one of you 
and to go get your brother while the other nine of you remain confined and your words will be tested to see whether there is truth in you. Or else, surely you are spies. And he put them into custody for three days. While they're in jail, they come to one another and they say, uh, see, we're guilty concerning our brother. And that, you know, we saw the distress of his soul. He begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come on us, right? They're like considering karma, right? Like this is like we, we're, this is payback for what we did to Joseph, not realizing that Joseph is the one who is, who is there with them. And then after three days, Joseph took Simeon from them and he bound them before their eyes and he gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. So Joseph, he kind of changes his mind. He's like, all right, uh, I'm not going to keep nine of you and send one of you home to get Benjamin. I'm going to keep one of you and send nine of you home to get Benjamin. So go home and get him. Otherwise, Simeon is going to rot in jail for for the rest of his life. Until, Until I see Benjamin, Simeon is my prisoner. And then he puts all their money back in their sack and sends them. Essentially, he's, he's kind of putting them in a situation where you're going to get home. You're going to think, well, we got our food that we went, came for. We even have our money, miraculously. So, now, like, if we're the same jerks that we were when, when we killed, you know, when we sold Joseph into slavery, then we're just going to say, forget Simeon. Like, it, hey, he drew the short straw. That's his problem. We're going to stay here with our money and our food, and we're going to be we're going to be just fine. Joseph is trying to see if that if they still have that kind of sinful, selfish, exploitative impulse in them. But they go home and they say, "Hey, Dad, Joe, Jacob, here's what's going on. We need to take Benjamin back so we can get Simeon." And Jacob, their father, verse thirty six, says to them, "You have bereaved me." Uh, of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. You're going to try to, that's my third son that you're going to take from me. He shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. And he is the only one that's left. If harm should come on the journey that you were to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow down to Sheol, down to the grave, right? You're not taking Benjamin, right? I'm just going to cut my losses. Lost Joseph, lost Simeon. I'm not losing Benjamin too. Verse or chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah said, The man warned us, saying, You shall not see, your, uh, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Uh, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, then we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face. So Jacob says, go get food. Judah says, we will if you let us take Benjamin. Jacob says, I'm not letting you take Benjamin. They're at an impasse. Verse 8, Judah says to his father, then send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and your little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. It's on me. Dad, it's on me, Jacob. Right, remember, and you can kind of see the, 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 the change in Judah's life. He was the one who sold Joseph into slavery. He had this big embarrassing incident with Tamar in chapter 38. And now all of a sudden he is spearheading the efforts to try to get Simeon back, even at great personal cost to himself, right? If, if, you know, if it comes to it, kill me if you have to, Dad. In verse 19, so they went up, to the steward 
uh, of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And he said, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, the money in full weight. We have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down to buy more food. We do not know who put the money back in our sack. So they're kind of like, Oh, like they're, they're transparent and honest about it. They're like, look, we don't know. We didn't steal this money. Somehow it made its way back into our sacks, but we're happy to give it to you. We, we don't want to take anything that we don't, that we didn't earn. Joseph doesn't really, he's not that concerned about it because he knows that he was the one who put the money back in there because these are his brothers and he's sending his money back to his father who he loves. And now Jacob gives them another test, right? Years ago, what started the whole thing was, was Jacob showed favoritism to, jo- to Joseph and his brothers hated him for it. And since then, uh, Benjamin has kind of like slid into that place of being the favorite child because he's the other son of his favorite wife, Rachel. So they all sit down to dinner and, and uh, Joseph gives Benjamin five times as much food as everyone else. Everyone gets a plate with normal portions. Joseph gets just an entire flatbed truck full of all the food that he could possibly eat. He's trying to kind of incite them. He's trying to get them to, you know, see if they'll be jealous of Benjamin like they were jealous of him, to see if they're going to lash out at Benjamin like they lashed out at him. And then in chapter 44, uh, Joseph goes even further, right? It's not just giving him extra food. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 44, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food. And as much as they can carry and put their money back in their sack, just like he did the first time. Give them their money, give them the food for free. It's on the house. But put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack of the youngest with his money and with his grain. That's going to be key. So then they leave. Uh, Joseph sends his, he says, they stole my cup. Which, you know, you got to be like, if he's like, put my cup in their bag. And then as soon as they leave, you're like, they stole my cup. Go get it. You're going to be like, dude. Man, I mean, I guess you can, like, you know, you can, you're like the most powerful man in Egypt, but that's kind of a, kind of, you know, not, not cool, Joseph. Anyways, uh, he sends them after them. They overtake them. They confront them. And the boys respond. They say, far be it from us to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How could we then steal silver or gold? Like, they're like, look, we, if we wanted to steal, we would have just kept the money that we stole the first time. So why, like, why would we steal anything now? Especially, why would we steal your silver cup? If anyone is found to have stolen that, they shall die. Verse 11, Then each man lowered his sack, and they opened it, starting with the oldest, going to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Dun, dun, dun. Like, this is a big, you know, commercial break, you know, season cliffhanger, whatever. Uh, season finale cliffhanger. Benjamin, the cup is found in his sack. And they just got finished saying, if any of us has the cup, that person should die. And now Judah is sweating too because he promised Jacob that he was going to bring Benjamin home safely. And now it's looking like maybe he can't. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? What shall we say to my Lord? Or, and then they said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found the guilt of your servants. We are your servants, both we and he, uh, we, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also who is, who, in whose cup the hand has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. So Judah basically says, you got us, whatever you're going to do, do it to all of us, all for one, one for all. And And Joseph says, nope. I'm only going to, to you know, execute the one guy who stole the cup. I'm only going to execute Benjamin. 
So Joseph is orchestrating the situation. He's already kind of given Benjamin preferential treatment to see if they were going to resent him like they did Joseph. And now he is putting Joseph's life on the, like, hanging in the balance to see, uh, like, will you guys stand up for your brother in the, like, like you refused and failed to do for me? Like, do you love Ben? Like, have you grown so that you can watch your brother get special treatment and then still look out for him, take care of him, make sure that he doesn't get hurt, make sure that he doesn't get sold into slavery like he did to me. And here's the big turning point with Judah. Verse 18, Judah went up to Joseph and said, Oh Lord, please let your servant speak a word uh, in your ears. Let your anger not burn against me for you are like Pharaoh himself. You are the, the king of Egypt. Joseph, you are the man. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again and buy us food, we said, we can't go unless we bring Benjamin with us. For we can't see Joseph's face unless Benjamin is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, if you take this one from me, if harm comes to Benjamin, you are going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be so sad, I'm going to die. You're going to bring my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. I'm going to be sad, I'm going to be mad, and I'm going to die from a broken heart. Verse 30, now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, if the boy is not with us, as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as my father sees that that Benjamin is not with us, he will die. So Joseph, I'm asking you a favor. Verse 33, please let me, your servant, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if Benjamin is not with me? I fear to see what would happen. Judah is the brother who orchestrated Joseph's uh, betrayal. He trafficked him into slavery, and now here he is interceding for Benjamin, offering his own life in exchange for Benjamin's life. Let me pay his penalty. Let me go to prison instead of him. It's been profound change in Judah's life. Chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood, who stood by him. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I'm your brother Joseph who you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine that's been in the land these two years, there are still five more years to come. And God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a Lord uh, and, and Lord of all his house and ruler over all of Egypt. Joseph tells his brothers to go home, get Jacob, get the whole family, get the whole estate, all their property, relocate back. He sends vehicles home to make that happen. Verse 25, when they went up out of Egypt to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is the ruler over all of Egypt. And his heart became, Joseph's heart, or Jacob's heart becomes numb because he didn't believe them. This, I've thought this guy's dead for decades now and now you're telling me that he's alive and he's the one who's been holding Simeon he's the one who's been insisting that Benjamin come there to see him but then he looks and he sees all of the fancy you know Egyptian wagons that Joseph had sent and he says well I I I believe it this is enough Joseph is still alive I'm going to go and I'm going to see him before I die 
chapter 46, uh, they, go, they go to Egypt, and there's this big, beautiful reunion between Jacob and his son Joseph. Chapter 47, Jacob and his family settles in a part of Egypt called Goshen. The famine gets worse before it gets better, but Joseph continues to make grain available to everyone throughout the whole earth so that they can live and not starve. In Genesis 48, Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Basically, they're his grandchildren, but he says, I'm going to treat them like they're my own children uh, because of the special status that Joseph has. In fact, they both have their own tribe among the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Genesis 49, Jacob uh, blesses all of his 12 sons now that they're all kind of reunited. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. And then Jacob dies. And then Genesis 50, uh, they mourn Jacob. There's a big you know, funeral, a big service. And then there's one last epilogue uh, where after Jacob dies... Joseph's brothers get scared and they're like, uh, we think that maybe Joseph might kill us now. Like, like maybe he was holding out and not getting revenge because he uh, knew he didn't want to make his dad mad. But now that his dad's dead, maybe he is going to kill us. So they send word to Joseph and they're like, hey, just so you know, dad wouldn't want you to kill us. Like just, you know, maybe, maybe be like, be gracious. Don't do anything that he wouldn't have wanted you to do. And Joseph says in verse 19, do not fear brothers, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear. I will provide for you. I'll provide for your children. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Complete, full, comprehensive forgiveness. These are literally the same guys that sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him and they hated him. Joseph spent years in prison and in slavery because of these guys and he forgives them. But he doesn't just forgive them. He forgives them while pointing to the sovereign hand of God that was at work in his life through all of those circumstances that these guys perpetrated against him. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't write it off. Right? He says, you were evil. You were wrong. You meant evil against me. You sinned against me. But God's sovereign hand was working above yours, bringing about his good and perfect purposes even through your wicked actions. This understanding that Joseph kind of shows us here is how we should understand God's sovereign hand in the world. It's how we should understand evil and suffering. Right? We look at evil and suffering and it's okay to acknowledge that's evil, that's wicked. You're hurting others, you're oppressing others, you're exploiting others. Those actions are not good, they're not okay. They make God angry. God's wrath is stirred up by those sinful actions. And yet, even though sinful people do evil and mean to do evil, God can still use their evil actions to bring about a good result. God is constantly taking sinful actions of human beings and orchestrating them for good, for His glory. Does it with Joseph, 
sold into slavery, false accusations, rotting in a jail cell, forgotten by the people that were supposed to advocate for him. And eventually God uses all of that to install Joseph into an office where he can save countless lives in Egypt and in Canaan and all over the world. God did it with Joseph. God did it with Jesus. The worst thing that's ever happened in all of human history was the crucifixion of Jesus. Sinful people literally murdered God as Jesus hung on the cross. And yet, the the crucifixion of Jesus is what God used to orchestrate and bring about the most glorious thing in the entire cosmos, right? The salvation of God's people, the forgiveness of sin, the reconciliation to God, security and assurance for all of eternity. If we, if we read this story with Joseph and we kind of read it with a, with a narrow angle lens, then we're going to miss out on what it's really pointing us to, right? The story here with Joseph is ultimately pointing to uh, the story of Christ and his work to save sin. Tell me, tell me if this story sounds familiar, given what we just heard. A Jewish boy, the beloved son of the father, the son uh, with whom the father is well pleased. The father showers affections and gifts on this son because he loves his son. He's his only begotten son. That son comes to his brothers, but he's not received by his brothers. He's hated by his brothers because he brings a bad report about his brothers to the father. The beloved son exposes the guilt and sin and selfishness of his brothers. And because of that, they hate him. They want nothing to do with him. The light has come into the world, but men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And even though these brothers should... And ultimately one day will bow their knee to this beloved son as their true king. Instead, they strip him of his garments. They beat him. They throw him down into the ground, bury him, leave him for dead. But he's not dead. The beloved son is resurrected out of the ground. All of a sudden, unbeknownst to these brothers, they discover that this beloved son of the father is risen in power and glory. He's reigning as a king over the Gentiles. He's taken a a Gentile bride. And now these brothers come before him. They, They look on the one that they have pierced. They bow their knee to him. They acknowledge his glory, his kingship, his authority, his reign. And now this beloved son is reigning over all people and he is salvation for all people. Everyone comes to this beloved son. Jews, Gentiles, all over the world, every tribe, people, language, nation, they're all coming to the beloved son. He is their provision. He is the bread of life so that they can be saved and live and not die. That's the story of Joseph. And that's the story of of Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed by his brothers, stripped, beaten, killed, buried, resurrected, power, glory, victory. Jesus establishes his church, his bride. He's reigning as king over his people, many of whom are Gentiles. Jesus stands with his arms open wide, ready to save anyone who will come, anyone who will come and take the bread of life from him. He will forgive their sin. He will save them for all of eternity. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. 
So, when we read this story, it's, it's okay, it's not wrong to read this story with a narrow angle lens and pull out application from just this story. You get things like, be righteous and above reproach like Joseph was. Don't fall into sexual temptation. Flee from it, right? Uh, be patient through suffering. Trust in the Lord's sovereign plan like Joseph did in jail, right? Uh, honor, like deflect honor and glory to God when people want to shower you with admiration and praise, right? Point, deflect that praise to God. There's all kinds of application that's good and right and helpful if we look at this story isolated all by itself. But the real application comes when we look at the story with a wide-angle lens and we realize that the application that we should be deriving from this story is, is ultimately not any of those things or, or in addition to any of those things, the most important application is that we trust in God's appointed Savior. The beloved Son of the Father who came to save you from your sin. Trust in the true and better Joseph. Don't reject him. Don't try to live your life apart from him. Come to him. Bow your knee to him. Receive the bread of life that he is offering freely to you. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus as your Savior so that you can experience the salvation of God, the nearness of God, the glory of God, so that you can live forever with God under the rule of God. The application of this story with Joseph is to trust in the person and work of Jesus. That's what God is calling us to do when we read about Joseph and his brothers. So our calling is to press into that together as a family. To turn from our sin and to trust in Christ together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the person and work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that, that you came to us and died for us, that you were risen from the dead, that you graciously invite us to enjoy your salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond rightly to Jesus. Keep us from the sin and folly of rejecting Jesus and resenting him. Help us instead to receive him and to trust in him. And as we do, Lord, help us to enjoy the bread of life that is freely offered through Christ and help us to be deeply satisfied by it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.